Mark chapter 6, where in this chapter, Mark begins a, a new section. Uh, Mark chapters 1 through 5, I declared as Jesus' initial ministry in Galilee. Uh, there, we learned a few very important lessons about Jesus. We learned that he is authoritative and that he uh, had risen to different levels of popularity among the people because of his authoritative teaching and his miracle working. As we come to Mark chapter 6, Mark begins a new section. Um, I call this uh, Jesus' intermediate ministry in Galilee and beyond. And here, uh, the word that I want to emphasize in Mark chapter 6, the theme is rejection. If you are here last Sunday night, we worked through uh, the first six verses of Mark chapter 6 where Jesus began this theme, where Mark begins this theme, describing how Jesus was rejected in his hometown by his relatives in the little town of Nazareth. Although that town maybe only had 150, 200 people, Jesus goes back to Nazareth. He begins ministering there. And initially, they are astounded at Jesus' miracle working. They're astounded at what he has to say. So what, what sort of wisdom is this? But then they convince themselves that uh, Jesus, uh, that, that something must be up, that you cannot trust this person because of Jesus' background. He was actually one of them. He came from Nazareth. They knew him very well. And so by the end, uh, verses 1 through 6, they actually take offense at Jesus when they consider him and his background and his claims. Well, Mark's next two stories, starting in Mark 6, verse 6, in the middle of the verse, and down through verse 30, Mark's next two stories are woven together again. There's a story embedded within another story, which is similar to what we've seen over and over again in Mark's gospel. These next two stories emphasize rejection as well. So while these stories might seem unrelated, I, I was listening to one preacher this week speak on this passage, and he was saying uh, that they were just random stories. While it might feel that way and seem that way, these two stories are related. There are similar themes and traits that draw them together, and Mark is making an emphasis. And so uh, what we'll look at today are these two stories, the rejection of the 12 disciples and the rejection of John the Baptist, and uh, we will learn uh, from this book, we'll learn how Christ prepares his followers to face rejection. So first I want to look at the rejection of the disciples told in verses 6 through 13, also verse 30. This rejection starts with Jesus giving them instruction about a mission. So look in your Bibles at the middle of verse 6. Since he went about uh, or among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics, or not to put on two tunics. Mark's story here about the disciples starts out with Jesus giving them instruction about a mission. We learn in the middle of verse 6 that Jesus is going to stay where he is in an undisclosed region in the city or in the province of Galilee, maybe in Capernaum, and Jesus is going to continue to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he's going to send out send out his disciples uh, on mission into the regions around him. 
Um, now, for just a moment, before we look at these verses in a little closer detail, I want you to turn back to Mark 3. Mark chapter 3. And I just want to remind you of what Mark has already said about the mission of the disciples. Mark 3, verses 14 and 15. Verse 4, or 14, it says, uh, And he, that's Jesus, appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Okay, so we learn early on in the Gospel of, of Mark, after Jesus calls the disciples, uh, we learn that Jesus had two purposes for calling them. One was so that they might be with him. That is, that they might fellowship with him and partner with him as he traveled around in ministry. And the other purpose is so that he might, at some point, send them out as well to preach the gospel and to heal people and perform exorcisms and so on. And so the disciples, to this point of ministry, have been with Jesus. They've been walking around with him, observing him, uh, partnering with him in ministry, and now comes the time where Jesus is going to initially send them out on mission. So turn back to Mark chapter 6 for a moment. As Jesus sends them out on mission, there's something that he's going to emphasize, and that is that they too will experience rejection as followers of his. And this is going to be a very valuable lesson for the disciples. I mean, it's one thing to see people unfairly treat a coworker or a supervisor. It's a whole nother thing when you are the person who's being rejected or mistreated. And so the disciples have traveled with Jesus. They've seen some people mistreat him, but now they're going to experience it themselves. And so as we look back to Mark chapter 6, uh, Jesus describes their mission in a few details. I just want to emphasize three characteristics of it here. First, he says that they are to go out in pairs. That's, he sends them out two by two. I love the Greek expression. It's just literally two words, duo, duo. So now you know some Greek, right? Duo, duo, two by two. Jesus is pairing them up for mission. So as he teaches in Galilee, he's going to launch out six mission teams to go for an undisclosed amount of time into the cities and villages around Galilee and in Galilee as well. Now, the text does not tell us why Jesus sends them out two by two. But I think there are a whole lot of logical reasons why this strategy is a good one. Uh, it will uh, provide them accountability in their first ministry opportunity as disciples. It will uh, uh, give them mutual encouragement. They'll be more dependable or reliable in their apostolic testimony, and they'll probably be more effective in ministry as well. And so Jesus breaks them out into six teams of two, sends them out, and then the text says that Jesus extends to them or gives to them authority or power over demonic beings. This is the same word that we've seen throughout the gospel so far. We've seen Jesus' authority on the display in, in many different ways, but now we learn he's got so much authority, he can give it out to other people as well. So he divests it to the apostles. And then finally, one of the interesting things to me about this, this, these instructions from Jesus is that Jesus charges them to take nothing with them on their journey. Okay, so they're, they're to take no excess baggage on their trip, just one you know, one change of, not even a change of clothes, one set of clothes, and it's supposed to be on them. Now imagine, we, we have a team 
coming up as a church, going to London, mission team. Imagine if I got with them as they were preparing to leave and I say, okay, here's our strategy. No bread, no bags, no money. Okay, and we just, you know, left all the bags here, got your one change of clothes, got one set of sandals, okay, you're good to go. Just go. I don't think what Jesus is doing here is establishing the, you know, the protocol for future mission opportunities. It's not like he's just laying out, this is what missionaries should do. There are other passages of scripture that talk to us about, you know, living wisely, planning prudently as we minister and serve the Lord. But I think that Jesus is emphasizing something here. Not only does Jesus want his disciples to be unencumbered as they mission, as they travel on these missions, he wants them to be dependent upon God for their daily provision. And so he tells them, not even two cloaks, I mean two tunics are you to wear. Ultimately, I think one of the lessons we can draw from this is we must remember that God is more dependable or reliable for us than any amount of money in our checking or savings account, okay? He's more dependable, more reliable. And uh, I think of the text, you know, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. Point I want to make here is that God is never at an end of his resources. And if he calls you to do something, he will provide for you along the way. Okay, now, now having said that, Next, in verses 10 and 11, Jesus considers uh, how people might respond to the disciples in their trip. So he gives them these instructions, you know, no, nothing fancy, just go. Then he says, verse 10, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So here it's very easy to outline. I think you could outline this one. It doesn't take a rocket scientist, right? You just look at your Bible. Verse 10 and 11, there are two possible reactions to the ministry of the disciples. In verse 10, he just briefly entertains. So there are going to be some villages that you come upon, some towns that you come upon who will receive you. Okay, verse 10. They will receive you. Receiving the disciples will mean that they extend hospitality to them. Okay? Now, now, hospitality is a, was a virtue in the first century among the Jewish people. And so, as the disciples go, they'll, they'll know that they've been received or welcome if someone extends hospitality to them and opens up their house to them. Okay, and so the instructions are pretty simple. If you go into a village or city and someone opens up your house to you, stay there as long as you're in that town. Don't move to another location in the town. I, I think what Jesus is doing here is he might be protecting them against, you know, the temptation to upgrade the facilities, that the, the, you know, the accommodations that they would be staying at. Okay, if you've ever traveled on some sort of ministry team, you might understand completely the concept here. There's sometimes you go to a place, you're like, man, this is like barely livable. And then you hear about someone else on the trip and they're like staying in a mansion. Yeah, they've got like pools and hot tubs and stuff. And you're like, man, what in the world's going on? Well, Jesus forbids that. I don't want you to go from one house to another. I think he's also protecting from dishonoring the first or the original host by moving along. And so he briefly entertains in verse 10 that there are some villages who receive you. He gives an instruction. But then in verse 11, 
He instructs them about, about some villages that will refuse them, that will reject them. Here Jesus describes the way the townspeople reject the disciples by their refusing to, and he uses two verbs, to receive you and listen to you. In other words, they will not only welcome you to their city, not welcome you to their city, they will have no desire to hear you and what you have to say. And so what Jesus does in verse 11 is he gives them instructions for what you should do if people refuse or reject you. And he basically gives the disciples a symbolic act to perform. He says, what you need to do in that case, if people refuse to receive or listen to you, you need to leave the city and you need to shake off the dust from your feet. You see that in your Bible, verse 11. Shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against the people. Now, I think that begs the question, well, what is this? What is shaking off your dust? You know, we don't do that normally in our culture today, unless, maybe unless you do, and if you do, you know, tell me after the sermon, we can talk about why you do that. So what does this metaphor mean? What does this symbolic act mean? Is it like, you know, is it similar to like wiping your hands clean when someone makes a decision that you don't agree with? Is that kind of, you're just like, I'm done with it, done with you, done with the decision? I think it's sort of like that, but it's a little bit deeper. And so, um, you know, I, I would reject what some people would say about this imagery of shaping the, or, uh, shaking the dust off your feet. There's, there's one commentator by the name of David Garland, who usually is a very good commentator. He says that they're doing it for, he says, solely for uh, dramatic flair. It's like, okay, you rejected me, so I'm going to do something. I'm going to just shake the dust off of my feet. I disagree with him. I think this is a meaningful, symbolic act. So when the disciples wiped the dust off of their feet, they were declaring to the town that they were heathen and to be under the judgment of God. In other words, they were declaring that this was a pagan place that will be judged alongside of the pagan nations. For this practice starts uh, before the disciples and, and usually, like when the Jews would return from traveling into foreign lands, they would do this sort of thing to wipe the dust of the Gentile nations off of their feet. And so I think what they're doing here is they're saying this is a pagan place that's going to be judged alongside of all the pagan nations. The disciples were removing the filth or pollution from the town from off of their shoes. And so while there's only one verse here that talks about the refusal or the rejection of some people to the disciples, I think that there's an emphasis on it. I think that Jesus is preparing the disciples to actually, I mean, there's going to come a time when you go two by two and you're going to go in some villages and they won't want any part of you. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to welcome you. They'll extend no hospitality to you. When that happens, this is what you need to do. Shake off, leave and shake off the dust from your feet. Well, the story of the disciples comes to a close then in verses 12 and 13, where we come to a preliminary conclusion. And then... At the end of the story, in verse 30, there's an ultimate conclusion. Okay, so let's look at verse 12. So they, the disciples, went out, proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And skip down to verse 30. I want you to see this is an embedded story. The story's not done. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and all that they had taught. And so what you learn about the disciples here is their ministry is much like Jesus's. 
The primary message that they proclaimed in these six mission teams is that people need to repent. If you go back to John chapter 1, we won't turn there, but that's what John the Baptist was saying. That's what Jesus said as well. Repent. I think that this is shorthand for their preaching the same exact gospel that Jesus Christ proclaimed, that they heard him proclaim. And so, as a matter of fact, this is the same gospel we proclaim today as followers of Jesus Christ. That is, that people are lost, dead in their trespasses and sins, and they need someone to save them. The only person who can save them from the punishment of their sin in hell is Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I give you the same exact message of Jesus and his disciples 2,000 years ago. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Having said that, his, their teaching is repent. They, then also they cast out demons, they anoint sick people with oil, and they heal them. Sounds a lot like Jesus' ministry. The only new ingredient is this anointing with oil. And so I think it's, it's, it's just good for us to consider it for a moment. What is the anointing of oil? Why were they doing this? Well, you know, I think it, it was common practice in the first century to pour olive oil over someone's injury because it was their belief. And I, you know, I didn't study because I'm not a physician. Uh, they, they believed it had some medicinal value. Okay. And, and that might very well be the case. Uh, many people, however, took it a level beyond that. And they thought that this, you know, if you put olive oil on someone's head, you anoint them, you anoint the injury, that this was a sure way of healing the disease. The problem was it did not work all the time though. And so I don't think that the disciples are actually doing this for some sort of like magical reason, but it's a symbol of God's grace that is necessary to heal these people. It's a symbol of the request that they're making to the Lord, that he would heal them with his blessing and spare them. Well, as we go throughout this mission of the disciples, details regarding the actual mission, I find to be very sparse. Like, I have, like, so many questions about these six mission teams. But Mark's main point is not to tell us everything that he knows about the first mission trips of the disciples. He does not tell us where they went, what happened in every city, what cities that they visited. He doesn't tell us what cities they condemned by wiping the dust off their feet. He doesn't tell us even how long this lasted. But Mark wants to emphasize, I believe, how Jesus prepares his followers to face rejection for for his cause. And I think that message will not be lost upon Mark's original readers. Remember weeks ago now I said that the gospel of Mark was written originally for Roman believers in the late 60s A.D., I said that I, I believe that the gospel of Mark is less an even, evangelistic tract, like the gospel of John is. It's, it's not primarily made for lost people to show them that Jesus says, although they can get that from Mark's gospel, but that Mark's gospel was originally composed as a discipleship manual for early believers who are enduring suffering and persecution for the cause of Christ. 
So these believers, this book is originally written to live in a city where in the next five to ten years, there will be unprecedented persecution and attacks on the name of Christ. So that Simon Peter himself, who is in some way responsible for the gospel of Mark, will be crucified upside down under the hand of the Roman ruler Nero. Not only will Simon Peter be crucified upside down, one of the greatest apostles to ever lived, Paul the Apostle, will be beheaded in the same city. And this persecution will go much deeper than these two apostles. It will extend to the church as well. They will be, some of them will be mistreated, persecuted, and martyred. Some of the believers who the original audience who read this gospel will soon be impaled on poles and used to light the city of Rome at night on fire. And so the gospel of Mark is like a discipleship manual that prepares believers to enjoy rejection. So as they're going through, as they're facing trial, they know, you know what, this just wasn't like Jesus. Jesus wasn't the only one who endured suffering his, the original 12 did too. Now, moving beyond that, Mark's emphasis on rejection, I think, can be seen even more significantly or clearly in the embedded story right after this. So from verses 14 through 29, Mark gives an account of the rejection of Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist. So on Mark 1, he prepares the way for the Lord And now we're going to see that John the Baptist endured rejection for the cause of Christ as well. Look with me, beginning in verse 14. I'll read just a few of the verses here at the beginning. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. (laughs) Here Mark starts this second story about the demise of John the Baptist by reflecting on how the events of Jesus' ministry were being received by what I'm going to call the regional leader of their country, King Herod. Now, before I I give you how Herod views Jesus, and we just read it, so you you, you can kind of see it there in the text, I want to just give you a little bit of information about who King Herod is, just to help you get more of a feel for what Jesus is, is facing or John the Baptist faced. Herod was actually what what, uh, historians would call a tetrarch. That is, He was uh, a ruler of one-fourth part of his father's kingdom, Herod the Great. And so when his father died, his kingdom was divested by Roman leaders to four different people. King Herod ruled over two regions. The King Herod we're looking at. He ruled over two regions. They were Galilee and Perea. Okay, and uh, we won't look at the map. We won't. You know, look back on that. Just know that to this point, most of, if not all of Jesus's ministry in the gospel of Mark has, a, has occurred in those two regions. 
Herod actually set up a capital city and ruled in a city called Tiberias, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this city, Tiberias, is only about six or seven miles from Capernaum, where Jesus has done most of his ministry. It's right on the sea. It's actually just across the lake from where Jesus cast out the legion of demons into the pigs. Okay, and so Herod has been reigning and ruling from the city on the sea of, on the city in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he, being over Galilee and Perea, had direct authority over Jesus and his disciples, and he could do with them whatever he pleased. And so Mark here describes Herod's reaction to Jesus and his disciples. In verse 14, he starts by recording three ways that the populace felt about Jesus. Just ask the common people of Galilee and Perea, they felt, some of them thought that Jesus was John the Baptist reanimated. Okay? Now perhaps it's, you know, because Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist's ministry didn't overlap very much at all. I mean, just after Jesus begins ministering, John the Baptist is in prison and so, and then killed. And so, uh, you know, perhaps there were some in these regions, some people who weren't aware of Jesus' baptism, you know, we have Mark 1. You know, we read Mark 1, you got like John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. We think, how in the world could anyone think that Jesus was John the Baptist? Okay, but there'd be some people in the region, of course, who wouldn't have been there, wouldn't have known. And so to them, what makes most sense is, you know, John the Baptist was a very powerful preacher. King Herod kills him, and we'll read about that soon. He's a powerful preacher, but now this guy is not only a powerful preacher, he's performing miracles. John the Baptist didn't do that before. And so what must be the case, you can see how some people speculate, what must be the case then is that John the Baptist has been risen from the dead and now he's conveying new powers of the world to come. Okay, so he's a preacher and a miracle worker. John the Baptist reanimated. Others felt that he was Elijah. Now, why would they think that he was Elijah? Well, Remember Elijah's end in the Old Testament. Elijah, uh, he does not die, but God calls him up in a whirlwind to heaven. And so some people might think, well, you know, Elijah can come back. He's still alive in some way or somewhere. They might also think this because the book of Malachi in the Old Testament actually predicts a time when Elijah is going to come back and he will speak, he will preach about the impending day of the Lord. And so you can see how some Jewish people would be expecting Elijah to come back. He's going to preach the coming day of the Lord. I hear this Jesus, and his message is about the nearness of the kingdom of God. So we need to repent. And so some people thought this was Elijah come back from the Old Testament. Others then, the text says, felt that he was a prophet in line with the prophets of the Old Testament. And they would be, I think, fairly excited about this because there was a break in the prophetic heritage. Weren't many prophets, any prophets he could really speak of in the silent years between the Testaments. And so they would see this as, you know, God's renewed blessing and interest in the land. He sent us another prophet, just like the Old Testament prophets. <laughs> well, as, hard, as far as Herod is concerned, what does he think? He agrees with the first group. He's convinced this is John the Baptist, reanimated. Now, why does he think that? He thinks that because he's convinced that Jesus is John the Baptist reanimated and that he's come back and that he is going to haunt or persecute 
Herod for Herod's killing of John the Baptist. Okay, so Herod thinks, oh no, John is back and he's more powerful than ever. I think this might be one of the reasons why King Herod gave Jesus so much leash. So much, you just go out in the city, you do whatever you want, just don't come. Don't come to like Tiberius, because <laughs> like I killed you. He thinks he's John the Baptist. Well, next, Mark flashes back in the story to tell of John's demise. Some call verses 17 through 29 a digression. I instead refer to it as a strategic flashback that allows Mark to emphasize the reality of rejection for followers of Christ. But to this point in the story, the reader will know that John, he must have died in some way or another. And so Mark tells us more of the story. Let's start in verse 17. He says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because, uh, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he, Herod, heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Okay, that story's pretty easy to see. You see, John's demise starts with his imprisonment. There's a woman by the name of Herodias that demanded that John be uh, imprisoned. The reason she does this is because she had previously divorced Herod's brother, another Herod, and had decided to marry uh, this Herod. And John was continually speaking against it. He says that the law of Moses forbids this sort of marriage. So he's continually counseling Herod, you cannot continue on in this relationship. And so Herodias demands that he be imprisoned, but that wasn't enough for her. I mean, if we read the story, we find out that she wanted him dead. She took great personal offense to this. She wanted him dead, but he's protected by someone. He's actually protected by Herod, the king. Because Herod felt that John was a holy and a righteous man, and he feared him. He actually even was strangely attracted to John the Baptist's preaching, although it perplexed him. Maybe he convicted him, I don't know. But one day Herodias wakes up to an excellent opportunity when it becomes King Herod's birthday. Okay? This is a day when Herod will uh, engage in debauchery of all forms, or many forms, and he will basically live the day in a drunken stupor. And so let's look at Herod's birthday in verse 21. It says, but an opportunity came for Herodias. When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. 
And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked him, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Here we learn that Herod's party uh, had uh, important dignitaries that were there. It was uh, an all-male party. And he had, he had men who were rulers, military leaders, and region officials who were there. I think Mark highlights a few important events here. I'll just, I'll just point out to you. I'm not going to retell the whole story. We just read it. But one of the things that we see here is that uh, Mark says that Herodias' daughter danced for Herod and his guests. Okay, now, uh, you probably have heard preaching on this before. You probably have heard someone talk about this before. Maybe not. But if you've heard preaching on it, you probably heard it explained that she danced in an erotic or a sensual way before King Herod. And that's what the word pleased means. This all-male group of, like, drunken men at this party. And that's quite possible. Matter of fact, one commentator, he says it this way. He says, Herodias' daughter danced seductively and greatly appealed to the lustful passions of these unregenerate pagan men. One word of caution though I want to give you about that is that the text does not come right out and say that it was a sensual dance. Okay? There's, there's nothing in the text itself that would demand that the dance would be sensual. As a matter of fact, some people would say, well, the same word that's used here for girl is the word that's used for girl up earlier in the chapter when you had a 12-year-old girl who is healed. Okay, so it, it might not be that she performed an erotic or a sensual dance, but a case can be made for it, however. And, and I, I actually think it probably was a sensual dance that she performed for these men. One of the reasons I would hold that is because of the infamous nature of Herod's parties. You could read through the Jewish literature of this time and you just know that when Herod threw a party, a birthday party, this Herod, go to places like Josephus, you see they involved themselves, engaged themselves in all sorts of lasciviousness and sins. Others suggest that because of the, you know, the repeated nature of Herod's oath, he says twice in the text, I'll give you whatever I want up to half my kingdom. And then he takes an oath to swear by it, that, that he might be in some sort of drunken stupor or something. Well, if, if this is the case, I just want you to think about Herod for a moment, his debauchery. Herod is a wicked man. His debased nature can be seen in his illegitimate interest in this young girl who is at the same time his niece and his stepdaughter. The line of the Herods were filled with all kinds of sins like this and incestuous relationships. Herod's a wicked man. Next, Mark says that Herod offered to give the girl anything, and he took an oath to confirm it. Uh, this would just be a binding oath that in their culture he would, he would need to honor. And third, Mark gives us some of the grisly details of her requests. She's instructed by a mother for the head of John the Baptist, and Herod reluctantly consents. Now go to uh, verse 27 and the actual description of John's martyrdom. It says that immediately the king sent an executioner and orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. 
Here Mark records the martyrdom of, what Je- of the person that Jesus called the greatest prophet to ever live. That's what Jesus said about John the Baptist, the greatest prophet to ever live. Mark records his martyrdom in, in only scant detail. Very few details here. His ministry has come to an end, John the Baptist, and he becomes the victim of some sinister men and women. People led by greed, lust, and a thirst for revenge. And so we learn in the text that John's head is given to this wicked queen, and his body is put in a tomb. By his disciples. So, in our sermon this morning, we have considered the rejection of the 12 disciples and John the Baptist. I've chosen for a title for this sermon Welcome is Possible, but Rejection is Likely for the followers of Christ. Mark gives two narratives to acquaint. Christians with the reality of rejection. And so men and women, as we inherit the mission of Jesus and his disciples, it is likely that we will also inherit the opposition that they faced as well. This is not only true of Mark's original readers, the Romans in the first century. It is true of the followers of Christ today. David Garland, a commentator on Mark, had a very powerful statement as he was coming to the point of application. He said, quote, he said, the world is filled with villainous people in high and low places today who will try to rub out the messengers of the gospel and their disturbing message, end quote. The world is full of villainous people who'd like nothing better to to rub out Christianity and our message of Jesus Christ and him alone. So, for instance, it should not surprise us if people in powerful positions attempt to squelch Christianity in America by using unfair financial burdens and taxation. Okay, so like there's this, you know, there's this theory about previous administrations and maybe them targeting Christian organizations, Christian universities and colleges, and trying to make it more financially difficult on them, or you know, even encouraging the IRS to go after Christian universities and ministries. Well, I don't know enough to know whether or not that was true of any particular administration, but I will say this, it should not shock or surprise us if that ever happens. Right? If they did it to Christ and wanted to rub him out, We should not be shocked when those who preach tolerance become incredibly intolerant of those who follow the pattern of Christ's teaching found in the Gospels and what he has to say about the home and Christianity shouldn't surprise us, shouldn't shock us. Men and women, it is quite possible for us today to one day face even severe rejection and persecution here in this country as our brothers and sisters are facing all around the world today. I mean, as we think of the global church, just ask the, you know, the Church of Colonial Baptist Church of Virginia Beach to now think about our brothers and sisters in other countries for a moment. 
As we consider, consider the global church, estimates are that there were over 90,000 Christians martyred for their Christian faith in 2017 alone. That is, people are singled out, some cases beheaded, other cases bombed or shot for their statement of faith in Jesus Christ. It's hit Christians especially in places like North Korea or Somalia or Afghanistan or Pakistan or Sudan, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. I was just reading one stat that said approximately... 215 million Christians today are facing severe persecution for the cause of Jesus Christ. 100 million of those Christians are found on the continent or in the continent of Asia. And so when we follow Christ, we should prepare for rejection. And we shouldn't sulk as if we're like the only people in the world that face some, some sort of rejection for the cause of Christ. Now, this has been true from the very beginning. It was true of the 12 disciples. It's true of the forerunner of Jesus, the powerful prophet, by the name of John the Baptist, who was beheaded for the cause of Christ. So we should prepare for it as well. But when, we'll on a positive note here, I think we should also be encouraged. For although rejection is likely, In the end, we will all reign and rule with Jesus forevermore. And like the apostle Paul said, I agree with what Paul said to the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago. He says, we know that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison." So rejection is likely, but reward is certain. We sang this morning, Jesus is better, and he is better. He has been victorious, and one day we'll be victorious with him. Until then, we gladly bear any rejection for him. And when you start speaking messages about the high cost of being a true follower of Jesus, what normally happens is the numbers dwindle. But Jesus does not save us to live a life of simple belief and then do our own thing. But he saves us to believe, to get in line as his follower, to share his word and his gospel and be willing to endure, I mean, anything, anything that would be called to face. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for texts like this one that remind us of the hard edge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we've reflected just for a few moments on, on the martyrdom of John the Baptist. And uh, for some of, this, some of us, it's just like water that rolled right off of our backs. We read the grisly details of the, the, 
the death of the greatest prophet ever lived, and we just think that that was a different time period, it was a different thing, and it barely affects us. But Lord, may we remember that Mark recorded these things in certain order, that he was led by the Holy Spirit of God to, to give us the very words of God for us. And to write it in such a way to emphasize the fact that followers of Jesus must prepare to endure rejection. Before we leave here this morning, Father, I would pray for our brothers and sisters in hostile places. There are people today, perhaps, who are putting their neck on the block. I pray that you would give them boldness, faith in Christ, that you would use them. As we consider the task that you've given to us in our country, I would agree it's unfinished. May we share the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. May we adhere to what Jesus says and be willing to endure whatever comes, whatever comes. Welcome is possible. Some will receive us, but rejection is likely. May we be prepared to face that through the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.